This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, March 23rd, 2015, Episode 10, Concerning the Milk of Grammar. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and today we continue with Eberhard the German and his rhetorical handbook in Latin verse, the Labyrinthus. When we last left our nascent grammar teacher, he was a newborn child hearing from the lips of the goddess Fortune that he is doomed to a life of tribulation without fame or esteem. Now we'll carry right on into the next section of the Labyrinthus, uh, in which he receives the knowledge that it will then be his duty to pass on to his students. This is all still happening in the form of an allegory, so we're about to encounter philosophy personified as a goddess, along with her seven daughters, the seven liberal arts. Um, I thought we'd start by briefly reviewing what these are and how grammar fits into them. Traditionally, uh, the seven liberal arts are organized into one group of three, the trivium, uh, which consists of grammar, rhetoric, and logic, and one group of four, the quadrivium, um, which consists of arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. Uh, you might observe that this scheme uh, leaves out a lot of modern academic subjects that don't seem to be included. Um, sometimes, of course, this is because the subject just didn't exist yet. Um, there's no psychology or sociology because there was no notion of those as discrete disciplines, um, though you do see that they emerge in a fashion through discussions of ethics or character or history. Um, and indeed, many subjects are included, uh, albeit rather covertly, uh, under the um umbrella of one of the seven arts. So history and literature, for example, um, being the content of so many important texts, in fact, make up the actual matter of the study of grammar and rhetoric. Uh, this is also the case for some of the natural sciences, um, to a degree, uh, especially in terms of the classification of animals into different categories or the naming of parts of the body, um, both of which lend themselves to composition exercises um, and ways of learning the techniques of division and classification. Other subjects are omitted from the liberal arts because they are simply conceived of as having a fundamentally different status in the hierarchy of learning. Uh, so philosophy is not perceived as a separate subject, um, but is essentially the product of studying all of the seven liberal arts. Um, allegorically, uh, this relationship is framed rather the other way around, with philosophy being the mother of the arts. But either way, the idea of philosophy as the totality of the arts is there. The subjects of advanced university degrees, um, namely uh, medicine, law, theology, uh, these also spring to mind, um, and they're set apart as a matter of definition. The liberal arts take their name uh, in the context of ancient Rome as being those subjects which a free person ought to be skilled in the things a citizen of Rome should be able to do. Uh, this is partly why the trivium 
is usually elevated above the quadrivium. Skills in expression and argumentation are especially vital in a society where citizens are expected to act for themselves in public debate uh, and in the civil courts. The quadrivium, which seems to stand as a form of the hard sciences to balance with the language-centric humanities of the trivium, it's really unified uh, more by a general theme of natural harmonies and relationships, um, which in the abstract is based on the underlying mathematical nature of music and geometry and astronomical, and indeed even astrological, calculations. Uh, but the harmony theme also has a political inflection um, that you can read into it. As Rome grows more and more imperial and less and less republican over time, and later still, as Europe becomes more and more feudal, law becomes a specialty subject uh, rather than just being the principles of persuasive oratory that would have been useful to a, a Roman citizen. And theology is elevated to the position of queen of all sciences. Thomas Aquinas highlights a new definition of liberal arts uh, that's better suited to a society where the concept of a free citizen is no longer quite so applicable. He says, quote, Only those arts which are directed to knowing are called free or liberal arts, whereas those which are directed to some useful end attained by action are called mechanical or servile arts. End quote. Which is to say, the liberal arts are those that are liberated from, you know, not dependent on, the worlds of commerce, production, labor, etc. They have value in and of themselves, um, not just for the actions that they inform. Thus, law and medicine, um, as well as engineering or agriculture or economics, uh, are essentially classed as servile, um, being skills learned expressly for application rather than knowledge learned and knowledge produced for its own sake. It seems to me that this notion uh, still stigmatizes the liberal arts um, among some people today who see them as useless ivory tower navel-gazing uh, instead of practical career skills. And this persists even while teachers of liberal arts subjects and administrators of liberal arts colleges try to reassert the old Roman ideals of creating engaged and capable citizens. But what does Eberhard want for his students? Being the first stop on the ladder of formal 13th century education, he doesn't have to worry so much about these higher pedagogical questions. Indeed, his pedagogical politics here can simply be summarized as, hey everybody, the study of grammar is really important, and without it you can't proceed to any of the other arts. Eberhard's rather at pains to remind us that Grammar is the eldest sister of the seven arts. She is prestigious. She is essential to all learning. And the humble schoolmaster who is responsible for passing the knowledge of her on is an important person and too little appreciated by those who benefit from his labor. One can imagine some of his complaints rather neatly fitting into the mouths, uh, perhaps not so much of elementary school teachers today, though there's certainly a parallel there, um, but even more so into uh, those of dedicated college composition instructors who are tasked with teaching foundational critical thinking skills and writing and argumentation skills that are meant to underlie 
all the higher level coursework that students go on to do, um, and yet whose ranks are made up of undertrained graduate students and unempowered adjuncts who don't necessarily get a lot of support administratively from above and from below face students who resent being required to take their class. No doubt there are basic math and algebra teachers who feel exactly the same way, um, but I suspect their discipline doesn't provide them uh, with quite as many platforms for vocalizing their discontent um, as a writing teacher has. And with that note of lamentation, let's go ahead and get into our text. Uh, as before, I'll be reading from Evelyn Carson's 1930 translation of The Labyrinthus. Chapter 2 the commands of grammar. Meanwhile, animating strength develops in the boy. Reasoning power begins to mature, and the tripartite brain attains to discernment. The first division receives the impressions. The center one classifies them. The third retains them in the posterior chamber. Fancy is located in the first, power of reasoning in the middle one. The third has the power of memory. Impression impregnates these senses, from which phenomenon will arise the basis of all cognition. Philosophy, who reigns supreme in learning, calls unto herself the seven daughters begotten by her. My faithful offspring, she says, you are destined to show by your obedience the fruits of a good parent. Without my light, your lamp shines not, and still my light has need of yours. What you sow, I reap. What you plant, I gather. Whatever you heap up, my treasure chest holds. The eldest sister among you, with breasts full of the milk of knowledge, stands at the very threshold of the ascent. She implants the seeds of word formation and explains what letters can themselves produce musical sounds and what cannot. She separates into a group of five those letters which of themselves produce a musical sound. The remaining group is greater in number of letters. She enumerates mutes and liquids. She shows what vowels, with their force retained, compound with them. She explains the syntax of simple words. She aptly joins together parts of speech, fashioning a figure of speech and a trope. From this spark, a torchlight gleams on high. From this seed is produced a rich harvest. From this root, a branching tree grows tall. From this little spring, a stream of water overflows. Your eldest sister thrives upon service. Without the schoolmaster, she is unable to perform her duty. Submit him to his military service, whom the fates summon. Let him bear the standards which the constellations assign. Let him cultivate the wild vine and transform weeds into harvest. Let him cause the bramble bush to bear fruit. Let him mold your foster sons on the model of his learning, so they may advance a step. So long as he is ruminating upon the alphabet, your every worth lies buried in concealment. If he has no knowledge of the elements of speech, he will not know what refutation is, or axiom, or point, nor will he know with what complexion a political argument is painted, or what a subject of debate is, or logical genus. The nature of arithmetic, what number may be computed, what root is, and its power of multiplying, these are obscured from him. The meaning and quality of symphony of sounds and a sound modulated by nine modes are obscured from him. 
He does not know point, plane, line, or volume, or what quadrature a circle itself has. He does not know what stars are, or the nature of a planet, and how it is fixed and retrograde in its course. Thus your herald, who is summoned by fate's decree, may drink temperately from grammar's full breasts. If he has been sated with milk, he will despise the crude pupils and will not feed them, though they are hungry. Be considerate of them. The boy approaches the older sister's breast and draws in the first yields of milk. A imprints itself upon his mind as he sucks from the first breast. The host of letters follow in their order. He sucks forth every syllable in the alphabet and all the parts of speech, which are the basis of every classification. He draws forth the characteristics and modifiers of each and the term by which each is definitely designated. He drains out what parts are placed at the beginning and at the end of a sentence. From the remaining richer breast, he drinks in the reason why diction is wedded to his companion grammar. From this source he drinks in what construction of words is pleasing and what is not, and all the varieties of this. From this source he drinks in what congruity of sense and word means, and what combination does and does not contain both. What style excuses imperfection and all the distinct forms each figure of speech contains he drinks from this source. Thus speaks the mother and source of language to her apprentice, May my method of giving instruction be pleasing to you. Acquire knowledge before you establish a system of teaching. If you wish to lead the blind, have vision yourself. First be master of yourself, then of your pupils. Inasmuch as you are expected to sow the seeds of every branch of learning, every age must be discussed by you. Mildly and with gently pressing thumb imprint the seal of learning upon the plastic wax. As you feel it becoming more hardened, constantly press more firmly upon the wax which you must shape. The older pupils should be rather sternly managed and will eat my food as it becomes more solid. Each grammar, in which Remigius will be of use to the oarsmen, offers childish subjects for children. Donatus designates what you will forbid and what you will allow your pupils, to wit, the vicious versus the beautiful. Extract sparkling bits from the twofold corpus of the teacher Priscian, crumble them and scatter them to your pupils. He teaches the accent approved in ancient usage, and indeed the one which present-day reading maintains. Teach both by example and by precept. You will make your pupils studious if you will be studious yourself. Precepts warn, example inspires. Precepts strike the ear, example steals into the depths of the heart. Nature furnishes the hidden workings of the soul, external things give manifestations of the mind. If passion for study in a pupil cools, it will glow if you fan the flame. It is your task to stir up this fire of glowing desire. The strong student is to be refreshed in one way, the weak in another. The dull and the ingenious have different needs. The one finds pleasure in weighty problems, the other in simple ones. My faithful companion, Posey, has something useful for both. Keep the constant ones with entreaties. Call back the fugitive ones with promises. Hide your leash from the excessively timid. With duly cheerful countenance, you will encourage the timid. Let your wrathful expression flash fire upon the undaunted. Curb the unrestrained, love the gentle, reprove the foolish, guide the faithful, berate the truant. Correct offenses with words and flogging. Rather harshly with words, more moderately with switches. Angry, learn how to become mild towards the young. 
mild, learn to grow angry. Be kind in your severity. Idle labor of the hands, like feeble labor of lips, bears no fruit. Therefore, a sure hope of reward revives effort, and your solicitude may produce fruit. While you are demanding your harvest of reward, which is an antidote for your labor, weigh their fathers on a triple balance. Destiny is now favorable, now cruel. One person is in want, and another abounds in possessions, but a mediator is seated between the two. If money has been denied to a person, love of Christ may be substituted in its stead. It is usually the rich man's concern to be sparing of pay and prodigal of promise. Thus he ensnares you, so be on your guard. When words blossom forth, the mind is barren. The heart within bears that which flowery tongues are eager to conceal. You are more sure of payment from a man in moderate circumstances. Let your first consideration be for his son. If you should, with such a motive, hold the reign of tutor, your care and your effort will not be unrewarded. I love this little glimpse we get at what the medieval classroom might have been like um, here at the end of this passage. The next section of the Labyrinthus starts with a short speech by Posey, or Poesis, uh, the goddess of poetic composition, but then quickly moves to fairly typical instructional matter for Latin composition, um, such as using zugma to begin a sentence or inserting variety um, through the use of amplification and abbreviation of one source material, etc. Um, it's not until the penultimate section of the Labyrinthus that Eberhard returns to his opening theme of the hard life of the grammar school teacher and gives us a few more portraits of problem students and the unrewarded toil of the teacher, um, a passage which I'm certainly going to feature in a future episode, um, though not just now. Uh, we'll shift to a different topic for next time. The thing I find most striking about Eberhard's advice to teachers, um, speaking as he does through the goddess, of course, is how applicable it remains today, um, minus the bits about corporal punishment. I expect many teachers in many different disciplines at many different grade levels would recognize Eberhard's basic precepts for fanning the flames of learning. Last episode, I rather focused on the alienating aspects of the medieval grammar school classroom, uh, of learning a foreign language by means of what were ancient textbooks even in the Middle Ages, um, and learning uh, for the preparation of future clergy. Uh, I maybe overstated the case a bit last time. Um, I've been reading Nicholas Orm's uh, rather recent book, Medieval Schools uh, from Roman Britain to Renaissance England, and in that he challenges some of the stereotypes we have of medieval education. For one thing, there was probably more functional literacy among the non-clerical classes than we might expect. Um, and there was instruction of children, boys and girls, in reading and writing, both in Latin and in their native languages, for those who had no intention of pursuing a clerical career. We've tended to project the goals of medieval university education back onto the grammar schools, 
And that's partly because we have a much clearer picture of what was happening in the universities than we do of what was happening in your typical town grammar school. Uh, they just don't make it into the historical record in substantial ways. Uh, and so it's quite difficult to reconstruct a good picture of them before about the 15th century. So what is this job that Eberhard is preparing his reader for? Probably the best comparison we can make um, is to the one-room schoolhouse of the American frontier, or its equivalent in rural Europe. Now, for every characteristic I'm about to list, uh, you can find plenty of notable exceptions. Um, but as a working generalization, uh, we can say that these schools would have had a single master who might have had a couple of assistant teachers. In some cases, the master was paid a salary, uh, especially if the school was affiliated with a cathedral or monastery or was endowed by a local bigwig. Um, but typically, the main source of income for the master was from fees charged to the students, uh, as well as charges for boarding some of the students, as the master would often do in his own house. For the most part, students of all ages were being instructed together, with the youngest entering school around the age of seven, and the eldest generally being in their mid-teens, uh, though it's certainly possible for some adults to be enrolled as well in the local school. Numbers of students in these classrooms vary, uh, with small schools maybe only having a dozen at a time, though some town schools, uh, even in towns that weren't particularly huge, um, claimed nearly 100 students in their school, which suggests a rather different environment than uh, our traditional picture of the one-room schoolhouse. Though nonetheless, the architectural evidence still suggests the use of large single halls for these schools. Generally, uh, the master would sit enthroned, as it were, at the head of the classroom and would call the students up in front of him to be examined uh, and, when necessary, to be punished. So we have to talk about corporal punishment. It is striking, though not surprising, I suppose, that it features prominently in the discourse about schools and schoolboy experiences from the Middle Ages. When schoolmasters are featured in visual art, their iconography consists uh, usually of one of two poses. One is posing with the fingers of one hand raised, a uh, conventional teaching gesture. The other is posing with a birch or bundle of switches in hand. Given that corporal punishment was widespread and accepted throughout medieval society for adults as much as for children, one imagines that school beatings must have been especially spectacular for them to come to define the popular image of schooling so completely. Eberhard gives us lessons on Donatus as the font of tears for schoolchildren, um, but it seems like nearly everyone else in the culture is pointing to the schoolmaster's rod as the true torment of their school days. There's a very short piece on the attitude of medieval teachers to corporal punishment um, by Ben Parsons, which came out of, about a year ago in the Education Journal, uh, in which he notes that even though the importance of discipline was so ingrained in the profession that in the year 1500, masters at Cambridge were given rods at their graduation, uh, quote, like knights receiving their swords, uh, end quote, texts on teaching emphasized being governed by reason when administering beatings. One suspects 
uh, this is one of those cases where such moderation is stressed in the guidebooks precisely because there was a genuine problem out in the real world of masters losing control and beating students out of anger or spite. Um, and certainly I think this accords with most of our impressions of human nature and how punitive powers frequently um, get employed. Uh, and Eberhard offers us uh, another example of someone who by no means objects to corporal punishment, but who tries to confine it to a rather narrow function within um, a larger approach to discipline, um, and who emphasizes that the most important part of the discipline is the words of admonition and not the pain of the switch. Uh, you know, it's no to sir with love, but it does help shake up the almost Dickensianly brutal image of the schoolmaster as a kind of prison warden that we might have. Uh, it's also easy to picture these teachers who, when they enter the historical record, are often there trying to collect on fees owed to them by delinquent students or their parents. Um, it's easy to picture them as mercenary money grubbers uh, or as entrepreneurs out to milk an income from the local ambitious classes or the aristocratic second sons of the district. Um, and teaching almost mindlessly from these old Roman handbooks. Uh, that latter point is rather refuted by the number of grammatical and rhetorical treatises uh, that these teachers are writing in the Middle Ages. Um, of course, they have to pay obeisance to Donatus and Priscian and Cicero, sure, but they are actually rearticulating and even redefining their subject for their own age and their own students. Um, it's not just wrote recapitulation of a Roman education. Um, and Eberhard, reminding his reader that it is the teacher's task, quote, to stir up this fire of glowing desire for learning, uh, he reminds us that these teachers could have as strong a sense of their vocation as modern teachers do. And I find that there's even um, something like a progressive lesson in his comment that Posey, or poesis, is useful in teaching both the durus, the dull or the thick, and the ingeniosus, the ingenious or naturally talented. In her little speech that comes right after today's selection, uh, poesis, as grammar's companion, emphasizes how, quote, my subject matter includes all that the circumference of earth embraces, end quote. And this notion that the study of poetry includes not just uh, the reading of the great classical poets, whose work indeed covered every topic from myth and history to nature and theories of the composition of the universe, um, that this study also included the writing of poetry right alongside the reading of it. Often such writing was in direct imitation of an esteemed author, um, but it could also turn to the student's own themes. Uh, I'm in the English department myself as a creative writer, and I know I and many of my colleagues make a conscious effort to incorporate creative writing exercises even into the literature classes that we teach, um, not just as a fun lark, uh, but as a meaningful way to engage with and apprehend literary works of unfamiliar time periods or even just unfamiliar genres and styles. Um, and most late 20th century poetry is essentially a foreign genre to the average student, uh, to say nothing of Chaucer or Langland. This use of creative exercises is certainly not novel, um, but I think there is still something a touch 
radical about attempting a serious integration of creative work alongside critical work in a literature classroom. And it's a practice that still meets some resistance, in part, no doubt, because of the challenge of grading creative work uh, without that being too obviously subjective. But it rather warms my heart to see Eberhard speaking for, from what we might think of as a profoundly conservative pedagogical system, uh, but to see him praising the academic usefulness of both the reading and the writing of artistic texts, you know, of poetry in its broadest definition. Now, to change focus a little bit, it's also interesting to me that Eberhard portrays his birth into grammar knowledge as this essentially passive nursing. Uh, of course, this is the conceit of writing an allegory, um, but the way the allegory rather seamlessly shifts into a real-world discussion of managing a classroom, uh, this blurs the conceit a bit. Uh, and so we're left with this notion, at least, that Eberhard comes by his own grammar knowledge and authority by some special dispensation, and not because he's been put through this same grammar school ringer that he's now cranking the handle of himself. To speak from personal experience, I think that there is a kind of phenomenon of a teacher forgetting their own studenthood. It's not a universal phenomenon by any means, and certainly I know many teachers who are so full of anecdotes of their own formative classroom experiences that I have to wonder uh, if I'm not the total outlier. Um, but I struggle to call to mind what it was like to be a student, to be an undergraduate, um, to say nothing of being a grade schooler. I remember aspects of life, friends, teachers, personalities, but I can barely remember what the work of education was. Um, I suppose a simpler way to say that is that I remember school, but I can't really remember learning. It's as though the possession of knowledge overwrites the ability to recall what the absence of that knowledge was like. Sort of like once you become literate, uh, you can no longer see writing as the unfamiliar squiggles it once was to you. Um, and anyone who's learned a language with a non-Roman alphabet um, has probably had a, a more recent sense of this experience. Uh, I certainly recall um, getting my ancient Greek textbooks in the week before classes um, and just seeing these pages covered in what might as well have been abstract art. Uh, but within a couple of weeks, I knew the letters, and I could perceive them as letters, and my brain parsed them as letters, forming words, signifying sounds, um, and I could never see them as abstract art again. And so we forget our ignorance, just as after a big meal, a full person struggles to recollect just what it felt like to be hungry, um, though it's only been minutes since that's precisely what they were feeling. The problem as far as teaching goes, of course, is that as one loses sight of what the student's experience is, one begins to lose empathy with the student um, and becomes incapable of seeing the class and the work from the student's perspective. Uh, and that's something I certainly constantly have to actively remind myself of. So I thought we might end with a bit of student perspective. Uh, or at least an attempt at it. I learned about the text I'm about to read through Nicholas Orm, uh, who quotes uh, the very passage I'm about to quote. Um, but I've gone and gotten the whole source book, and I can tell already that it will furnish me with a few future episodes of this podcast. 
Um, the book is called A 15th Century School Book, as edited by William Nelson in 1956, um, and it comes from a British Museum manuscript, uh, Arundel 249. This manuscript contains almost 400 short passages in Tudor English, with matching Latin translations uh, to be used as schoolroom exercises, compiled by a teacher of grammar at Maudlin School in Oxford. As such, uh, these were probably composed by the teacher, um, though many of them are written from the point of view of a student and reflect the conditions of student life. Of course, for all we know, some of these may be, or may be adapted from, actual student compositions collected by the teacher. Um, and I like to at least just imagine that that's the case. Um, and I thought I would share this one with you. Uh, it's the very first item in Nelson's edition, uh, though it's actually from the middle of the original manuscript. This text is from about 200 years after Eberhard's day, uh, but I think it still reflects some of the salient features of medieval grammar school life and the student's perception of that life. At a few points in the reading, I'll provide some glosses as needed for unfamiliar words or archaic syntax. Um, I'll flag those with the phrase, that is. Uh, so here are those as verbal footnotes. Here it goes. The world waxeth worse every day, and all is turned upside down, contrary to the old guise. For all that was to me a pleasure when I was a child, from three years old to ten, for now I go upon the twelfth year, while I was under my father and mother's keeping, be turned now to torments and pain. For then I was wont to lie still abed till it was fourth days, that is, until it was late in the day, delighting myself in sleep and ease. The sun sent in his beams at the windows that gave me light instead of a candle, Oh, what a sport it was every morning when the sun was up to take my lusty pleasure betwixt the sheets, to behold the roof, the beams, and the rafters of my chamber, and look upon the clothes, that is, the draperies, that the chamber was hanged with. There durst no man but he were mad, awake me out my sleep, upon his own head while me list to sleep. At my will I arose with entreaties, and when the appetite of rest went his way by his own accord, then I awoke and called whom me list, to lay my gear ready to me. My breakfast was brought to my bedside as oft as me list to call therefore, and so many times I was first fed ere I were clad. So I had many pleasures more besides these, whereof some be forgotten, some I do remember well, but I have no leisure to rehearse them now. But now the world runneth upon another wheel, for now at five of the clock by the moonlight I must go to my book and let sleep and sloth alone. And if our master hap to awake us, he bringeth a rod instead of a candle. Now I leave pleasures that I had some time. Here is naught else preferred but admonishing and stripes. Breakfasts that were sometimes brought at my bidding is driven out of country and never shall come again. I would tell more of my misfortunes, but though I have leisure to say, yet I have no pleasure, for the rehearse of them maketh my mind more heavy. I seek all the ways I can to live on at mine ease, that I might rise and go to bed when me list out of the fear of beating. And here's one more quick item that rather reinforces Eberhard's position on grammar. Um, here the hypothetical student remarks that his father wants him advanced out of the study of grammar and on to the study of uh, sophistry um, or logic or dialectic, uh, which is to say 
argument, um, a practical professional skill. And then we get the teacher's response. So, my father sent yesterday his servant to my master for to labor for me if he could bring about by any means to have me from hence to sophistry. But my master said utterly that he would not suffer it, for he showed that there could be no greater hurt to scholars than to take them too timely from grammar, but that it was time when they had read all poets, and then they should be ready to all manner of study. It's too bad that citing medieval texts is not likely to do much of anything to sway those who hold that the study of the humanities is a money-losing proposition at best, and a waste of time or outright ideological indoctrination at worst. Uh, but so it goes, I guess. Time to wrap things up. Uh, as I mentioned last time, our riddle was related to our text. The riddle was, Flat is my top, not flat my base at all. Both ways I'm turned, nor do my tasks appall. What one end does, the other can recall. This was another late classical riddle from Symphosius, as translated by Elizabeth Hickman Dubois. And the answer is graphium, or the stylus. If you said pencil, uh, you were very close, uh, though of course pencils um, were a Renaissance invention, and erasers weren't added to the ends of them until the mid-1800s. But the stylus was used in a very similar way. Uh, before paper was cheap and plentiful, students would write lessons on tablets coated in wax, using the sharp end of a stylus to inscribe the wax. Uh, the other end of the stylus was blunt and could be used to smooth the wax back out, effectively erasing or recalling, uh, as in taking back, the written text. One thing I dream of doing in a medieval lit class uh, as an experiential lesson in medieval pedagogy is to get a couple dozen of those tablets that you used to be able to get as party favors and such, um, which had a sheet of grayish plastic that would lie on top of a bed of black wax that you could then write or draw on with a plastic stylus uh, and then erase simply by lifting the sheet up. It used to be in my 80s childhood uh, that those tablets were fixtures of your cheap drugstore toy aisle. Um, but that seems to no longer be the case. And my online searches uh, just haven't turned up a good way to you know, buy a case of them. Um, maybe one summer when I'm feeling especially crafty, I'll just make my own set of uh, more authentic wax tablets. I can't imagine it'd be that hard to do. But I do think it'd be interesting uh, for students to try to take notes uh, or even compose on these rather small and awkward devices um, while taking in recitations or declamations from the teacher. Anyway, how about a new riddle? This one involves a little bit of playground vulgarity for Catholic school kids, uh, which means having some knowledge of Catholicism will help with the answer. Here it is. What time of the year may maidens most with their honesty fiest, that is, fart, in the church? Once more, what time of the year may maidens most with their honesty fiest in the church? Where fiest means to softly fart, or so the OED informs me. I'll have the answer for you in two weeks. Uh, until then... You can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast or leave comments, corrections, or questions at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, 
where you can also get references and other information for each episode. And you can contact me directly by emailing patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. It's also been a while since I checked in with the iTunes store reviews, uh, and I would like to offer my belated thanks to Villains Go Left uh, and to Leonard Smalls for their lovely reviews. Those are greatly appreciated, and it's doubly appreciated that they come from people whose usernames are such great, uh, deep-cut pop culture references. You know, it's been 10 episodes now, and I've basically made no real effort to publicize this show. Um, I've basically put all of my eggs in one keyword basket, uh, which is to say that if you search for the word medieval in the iTunes store or in other podcast indexes, um, this show appears in the relatively short list of relevant results. Uh, And I'm guessing that that is how the vast majority of you who are listening uh, found it. So I appreciate it all the more when nice reviews are posted uh, or when I see folks like Laura Deal and False Floramel and several others tweeting to their Twitter followers about the show. Um, now that I've actually built up a bit of a back catalog of episodes, uh, I think I should try to do uh, a bit more informal marketing myself. Um, but I have to say, you guys are really enabling my laziness because you're such a great audience already. Uh, and I thank you for that. I'll be back with more medievally goodness on April 6th. For readers in the Northern Hemisphere, enjoy the spring weather. Southern Hemisphere, um, I don't know, get your jackets out, I guess. And uh, to all my equatorial listeners, um, carry on as usual. So until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>